0: Lifestyle. SNS Online.
1: Hello and welcome to SNS Online. Today's special guest's acting career was effectively railroaded in the early 1980s by a fellow television icon, award winning producer Verity Lambert, who accepted an unsolicited TV script treatment written by the actor herself. The subsequent smash hit crime drama, Widows, broadcast in 1983 and starring Anne Mitchell, proved to be the start of an incredibly successful international writing career for one equity member listed under the name Linda Marchell. Let's take a listen to some of her work.
2: You've got nothing on me and I am here on a false pretentious... Give it up, Carl. We've opened up your old shop.
0: We found your sick trophy room. Victims underwear clothes you wore when you snatched them from the nightclubs the boxing gloves you used on them
1: this case is being taken over by DCI Tennyson
2: I'm
0: now in charge of this investigation last week it was announced by the prison authorities that the new governor of the riot-torn prison Barfield was to be Helen Hewitt I intend to take a harsh line with any inmate attempting to create further disturbances I am the governor here not you Tell me how he could do that to me because all i ever did was love him and when i when i knew i couldn't even cry that girl that young stupid girl looking at me like i was dirt i gave her money i felt such a fool betrayed humiliated How much is on the train? 30 to 40 million. So here's to us, and to the biggest train robbery in history. Our husbands aren't coming back. We're on our own. My husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only
1: one standing between you and a bullet in your head. And how can we not add that in 2018, Widows was remade as a Hollywood film starring Viola Davis and directed by Steve McQueen. Ladies and gentlemen, we are cordially invited to the home of one Linda LaPlante, CBE. So, oh, Linda LaPlante, script writer extraordinaire, and uh, I, I would say icon. I, you're such a significant name in the world of storytelling, and it's such an honour to have you um, on the show.
3: Thank you very much. i you... the icon herself.
1: <laughs> and you're enjoying a your little biscuit there?
3: Yeah, I've got a big chocolate ginger biscuit.
1: Oh, wonderful. I'm going to have one of those later. Um I mean, I see you up there with the very top sort of empowering woman in the arts in our lifetime, and I include names like Verity Lambert, Biddy Baxter, Esther Ransom, Joan Bakewell, Anna Hume, Jenny Murray. I mean, are you happy to be part of that crowd?
3: Yes, obviously. I mean, I think uh, sometimes I come over as a comic, you know, I'm fooling around a lot, but the reality is if you're a writer and a producer, you spend hours in solitary confinement and you have to work exceedingly hard, even harder nowadays than I did at the beginning with widows, because you have so much competition. And um, it's a side to me I very rarely show. Um, I think predominantly I like to encourage young writers But I also find it at times very difficult to really explain the solitariness. And that's only broken by research. Yes, of course. And research, I live by that. If I can't meet it, talk to it, I won't write it.
1: And your research has got to be said as forensic as the procedures in the police. I just was going to ask about your, your early days. Um, I, I know you were born and raised in Liverpool. How did your sort of creativity manifest itself as a child? I mean, were you very creative as a child?
3: No, not at all. Yeah,
1: okay.
3: <laughs> uh, I used to ache to be in the nativity play hmm. and I always had, you know, the fourth angel on the left. And once <laughs> I fell off the platform okay. and one of the teachers said, well, that was a good job. And, I, you know, nothing. I never did a school play. Um, so I what went- led you to Rada then? I really was very fortunate in the fact that I had been really earmarked for a ballet dancer. And so I'd studied ballet for many, many years. And when I say studied it, you know, two to three, four hours a day. So I was quite good. But as my mother said, you were always a step behind everybody else, but your confidence showed that they believed everybody else was wrong. And so but I never have made it. Um and I had a fall off a swing and I injured both knees got what they call water on the knee, but like balloon size. Oh. And so I had to stop dancing. And um, my mother put me down for elocution lessons. And I was fortunate. The woman that walked into my life was called Dawn McCormick. And um, if it hadn't been for her, I'd never even heard of Radha. Um, and she just said, you know, when you're doing a poem by Byron Linda, you don't move. (laughs) And uh, that was it.
1: What are your memories of Radha?
3: Not particularly likeable. Okay. Um, Again, I was too young to be there, very naive. Um, So naive, I don't think you would believe it. Um, I can remember a very funny story Um, There was a girl that I thought was incredible. Her name was Morag. And she used to smoke jeton cigarettes, which I thought was fantastic. She also had a leather handbag with a suede lining. And she had a short, propped hair. I thought she was the bee's knees. And she was terribly laid back. Apparently her mother was a very famous actress. And one time in the canteen, she said to me... Have you got a gynaecologist? And I said, "Um, uh, have you? She said, well, of course. Of course I have. I just wondered if you've got one. And I said, oh. At lunch, Ian McShane, John Hurt. I said to Ian McShane, what's a (laughs) gynaecologist? And he goes, I know what that is. You know when you have ordnance survey maps and they stick little flags in... That's a gynecologist. I said, why has Morag got one? He said, I don't know. (laughs) Now, that is to show my naivety, but also (laughs) in McShane's. You know, he wasn't joking. He was absolutely serious. Uh. Um, But no, at RADA, (laughs) you know, I was by far too young to be there, by far too naive. And, you know, if, as I said, I'd done dance training for many years. And to have to spend two hours, three hours, every other day learning how to curtsy was, to me, the tedium of all. I mean, I loathed it. And again, casting-wise, I would either be a waitress, or yes, ma'am, no, yeah. mom, uh, because I was very small, tiny little thing.
1: It uh, sounds like you had you were successful in theatre roles, though. That that seemed to f- uh, flourish for you. Royal Shakespeare Company now, that's...
3: Oh, yeah, but, I mean, not until a long time later. And, in fact, when I left RADA, uh, just before I walked out, I knocked on the principal's door and I said, um, it's very important at RADA, the big drama academies, that you actually have a showpiece because all the agents come to the theatre and vote or you can get an agent from your last performance as leaving drama school. So you run to the board to see what parts you've got. And I had an 80-year-old, a 75-year-old who aged 10 years, and a 70-year-old Trump. That was my final terms after two years at Royal Academy, old age pensioners. So I went to the principal. And I said, would it be possible to understudy your daughter? She seems to have every leading role. And he said, well, that's preposterous, Linda. What you have to realise is you're very short, you're not very good looking, and you probably won't come into your own until you're in your early 40s. Thank you. Charming. I, I have been very fortunate because the way I work now is the way I began um, for the very first show. Um, which was widows and um, I really truthfully didn't understand the word commission I'd written this two page treatment which is again something I try and lecture to students how you write a treatment to sell something don't send a complete manuscript don't send a complete novel they won't, it won't be read But a treatment, you you learn how to write a treatment which encapsules your story, encapsules your characters, not all of them, that will come later. What you want is somebody to pick it up and think, oh, I like this. Oh, I haven't seen this before. I'd like to meet the writer. Then when you get in that door, that's when you can embroider and lengthen your story and tell more about it.
1: You know, this is so interesting because I'm actually doing, working on something at the moment and uh, I was going to send them, send them so much more, but I've been told by a number of people, I think you've, you've sort of sold it to me, that I, I need to hold back some of my ace cards.
3: Not necessarily the ace card, because your ace card is going to sell it. Oh, uh, OK. What you have to do is be very careful how you write it. So I can remember very clearly exactly how I worded widows. Don't ask me why I chose to write it that way. I don't know. Call it the luck of the gods. But also, because I'd attempted a couple of other treatments I'd sent in, <laughs> and they were all rejected, apart from Think thing called women. And somebody had scrawled across it. This is brilliant. And that was a similar story about widows, but... Not in any way representing the, what it became. So I took that and I polished it. And I just remember very clearly exactly what I wrote, how I wrote it. And it covered only two pages. And so for some extraordinary reason, I put in on March the 15th. <laughs> I always say March the 15th because it's my birthday, <laughs>
1: Oh, happy birthday for March 15th. <laughs>
3: and I'm always using that because I think, well, you can't forget that. So then there was a, a robbery, attempted robbery in, in, in the underpass, which went disastrously wrong, killing. And I named Harry Rawlings, Joe Pirelli, Terry Miller. And the dead bank robbers left widows. Dolly Rawlings, Linda Pirelli. And then in the next paragraph, because I'm nearly, I'm, I'm spacing it. In the next page, grief-stricken, Dolly Rawlins, older than the other widows, more experienced, a woman who had longed for children and a woman who worshipped her husband, found the plans of his next robbery. And she decided to pull it off herself. That was it. Da, da, da. But that was it. Unbelievable when you think about it. And Verity Lambert Mm. didn't know who Linda LaPlante was. Mm. So she, via her secretary, asked if I would go in for a meeting. And I went in to Euston Films and her secretary said, Oh, um, well, Verity's waiting. (laughs) Went in. She looked up from her huge desk and she said, Oh, don't tell me. You're Linda LaPlante. and I said, "Yes, I am."
1: said <laughs> she knew you as uh, as, as a, a- an actress, yes, I'm a, as an actress. Yeah,
3: yeah Linda Marchal, mm-hmm. and um, she said, uh, "We all thought you were a transvestite trucker." <laughs> uh, the joke, everybody joked. I mean, Linda LaPlante can't be a real name. Oh, I
1: see. Yes, it's far too exotic. Yeah. Yes, and <laughs> so
3: she said, "Oh my god!" So she said, "Look, as." It happens, here's again luck, but it's also what you can as a writer look at to help you. That you can actually think what they're all going to be looking for. And it was good fortune that she was looking for a female-driven series. And um, the outcome was, she just said, look, I don't know if you can write. You probably don't know if you can write. Um, Why don't you come in with episode one? If it's any good, we'll commission all six hours. So I was sitting there thinking, ooh. ooh." Then she said, if it's not good enough, would you allow us to bring on another writer?
1: Because the idea was so amazing, yeah.
3: So I said, "Yes, yeah, I don't mind. (laughs) So she said, well, off you go. And, you know, I was on a tube going home, thinking, I don't know what to
1: do. Just to confirm, had you written... and I mean, what what had you written before? Had you sort of practised or written short stories? Or, you know, kept it to yourself?
3: I'd written uh, a couple of episodes of a terrible children's series that I don't even know if it went on, to be honest. Um, but I hadn't written, written anything, and yet still I'd always written.
1: Can I just say? <laughs> The kids from Forty Seven A. Gail Renard is a, is a friend of um, SNS Online, and apparently she's uh, she's um, wants to say hello to you, and also uh-huh. she asked me to remind you that you introduced her to Campari and Soda.
2: <laughs>
3: you know, I have um, uh, no memory because I used to when I did it. There was a lovely man. I think he was called Philip Hinchcliffe, who was the Philip Hinchcliffe.
1: Wow, he's yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a producer writer. Yeah.
3: yeah, he was lovely and very encouraging, but it was like you know, when you're writing for a specific um, storyline, children, um, and I think I thought, well, I don't think I'm going to do it anymore. I mm. thought, <laughs> well, that's it. I
1: and think then, Gail Script was, a, sorry, the um, script editor for that series. Yeah. Mm.
3: And uh, anyway, from then, I mean, well, it must have been years and years previously to even contemplating writing um, Widows. And when I got home, You know, I'm thinking, oh, right, the first episode. A, I didn't know any of the criminals that I'd flippantly put in my treatment. B, the police hunt. C, the women. How am I going to find the women? How am I going to find these criminals? And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know what to do, really. And um, eventually, I kind of first put in a call to the Metropolitan Police. And... And this is again something I encourage writers to do. They couldn't wait for me to come in and help me in every level of policing. So I was okay learning about that. And then, you know, I had a hooker, I had a severe heavy duty criminals, their wives, their families, and I was thinking, oh. And because I was an out-of-work actress. I used to do a store at Labyrinth Grove, mostly flogging, you know, my second-hand Christmas gifts and stuff like that. Dra- rubbish. What, well, things you made, or...? No, I didn't make them. OK. You know, usually my mother came with them.
1: Oh, right, them. <laughs> yeah.
3: But um, a lot of second-hand clothes, anything to make money, mm. to live on, really. And um, I had this awful trestle table that was always falling over. And... Again, you know, you learn things from the people coming up to talk to you. Mm. Well,
1: what, what surprised you the most in your research for widows? I mean, what, what really... Were you not expecting, perhaps, in the research?
3: Well, I wasn't expecting anything because mm. I really had never done it before. So all I knew was I had one middle-aged, tough, gangster's wife mm. who worshipped her husband. And then... You know, an Italian-based woman. Another one, a bit of dipsy, uh, a hooker, and. Um,
1: but you wanted to be true to those characters, obviously.
3: Yeah, I wasn't going to um, portray them as I'd often seen them portrayed. So the first one I went for was the prostitute. That's um, Bella, and her name was in the script, Bella O'Reilly. And I hung out at King's Cross. And, again, I got great help from the police. They pointed to me where the hookers hung out and what patches they were working on. So then I went up to one of the girls. And, you know, it was a bit plummy voice. excuse me, I'm writing a television script. And I was told to F off, really, basically, every time. And then when I said, look, I've got money, I'll pay you. Um, and then we used to go... When I say we used to go, I mean, I went five, six times with these girls to this awful cafe. And then my eyes really, you know, opened. I played prostitutes in every cop show you can think of. But when you talk to the real girls, um, it's different. And they taught me so much. And um, the humour, and I was paying them. Probably too much. But I didn't know what you would pay anybody mm-hmm. for research. Yeah. You know, and they go, well, she's never earned that much so far. So, God, look at that. Hey, You know, and they, and they joke. And then suddenly they would undercut something that, you know, made your heart bleed. Yeah. Um, and so I succeeded in that. So I had one character and the police procedure. I didn't have any criminals yeah. And I didn't have the big mama. I didn't have Dolly Rawlins. And working in the stall um, at Labrote Grove, a lot of them were saying, yeah, was she in Seacars the other day? And I was, you know, I said, yes, I am. Oh, boy, she was in Seacars, hey! (laughs) And all that was going on. And so I said uh, that I was writing this show. And... They asked me a bit about it, and then one of them said, here, yeah. see the woman on the fruit and veg with the woolly hat? Talk to her. Her husband's big time. He's away for murder, bank robbery. Um, but don't you tell them that I told you. <laughs> so this, she was quite tall, broad-shouldered, wearing a huge thick coat. She had a woolly hat on top of a wrap, like not about a clava, but one of those... <laughs> hoodies, mittens, fingers cut off, and fur-lined boots. And I went up to her, and I can't tell you the abuse. <laughs> it used to be so abusive. She would rant at me to, you know, I will not say the bad language. And <coughs> for some obscure reason, one day, one Saturday, she just came up to me and said, do you want to come home for a cup of tea with me? And... That was again the moment when I rang the doorbell on her high rise flat. One, I heard Kathleen Ferrier on a gramophone. Couldn't believe it. What is life without death? The woman that opened the front door was immaculate hair coiffured, fully made up, fingernails, in a smart, very smart, tight fitting suit, sk- tight skirt, fitted jacket. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, surprise, isn't it, darling, eh? Mm." And then she began to open up and there was Dolly Rollins. And she allowed me to have prison visits with her husband, and he became Harry Rollins. And so bit by bit by bit I worked and the the enjoyment of knitting the plot together for episode one. Um I some people would say it was fearless, some people would say, you know, what you don't know. <laughs> and uh so
1: possibly, you know, a little bit dodgy, like eleven o'clock at night, hanging around. <laughs> you don't know who's going to yeah. cosh you over the head or something.
3: But I had—I I was ever afraid. Mm. Um, and when I started to write, um, the enjoyment was was so fulfilling. Um, but the most fortunate thing was that I had uh, Verity Lambert as my well mentor, really. And her notes were superlative, um, always calm, um, always knew exactly what she wanted, but never got it out of me before she said it. So I'll give you a prime example of how she worked. And she said, so who's your leading role? I said, well, Dolly Rawlin. Uh-huh. You know, she doesn't come on till page 25. Oh. <laughs> What a note, eh? And what does that note tell you? You know, you want somebody to be in focus? Put them in focus. She just taught me everything about cutting, about characterization, and she never, ever touched one character. The only person she was confused about was um, Bella O'Reilly. And she said, now, look, I've got a clear picture of Dolly, clear picture of Linda Pirelli, clear picture of Shirley. I can't bring up Bella O'Reilly. It's such an odd name. It's, she's not." And I said, she's from Cardiff, Tiger Bay. And she went, Linda, she's black, isn't she? And I said, yes, of course she is. But I never put the colour of her skin. I wanted Bella O'Reilly's character. I didn't want to put a label on her. And, of course, we got the brilliant Ava Motley. Um, but that was a process of work that I absolutely adored, and the moment she said, "Okay, we're going to go with you, all six hours," um, and it was just incredible.
0: Don't move. Got it back. Show his face at Hatch. What? Hatch. They got a sliding door in the security van. Is that what you're going to say? No, this is a raid. Stick your hands up.
3: I've come in you lot. Don't mess about i got to go to work.
0: Look, it's your voice. Can't you lower the pitch?
3: Don't move! Well? Face us out, you're a woman. Forget it. Look,
0: stick something in your mouth and try
3: it. Don't! <laughs> I'll bleed and choke myself with that. i tell you one very funny story. It was um, because I began to meet a lot of criminals... And um, one of them had actually been a, a very notorious robber. I won't say what he'd done, but anyway. He, um, I, I, I said, would you ever consider coming in and talking to the director and producer? He said, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So I said to him, I said, look, the man that's guided me throughout and the criminal side. Do you want him to come in and meet you? Oh, darling, yeah, oh, oh, yes, we'd love to. And there was a lovely lady, their producer, called Linda Agron, as well as Verity, and she said, oh, darling, yes, bring him in. And then the director said, yeah, that would be cool. And so they're all waiting. And um, he just was not what they expected. Very young, very handsome. Had quite a considerable amount of face work done. Um, Obviously, to disguise how he really looked. Anyway, he was dressed in a leather coat with a big fur collar, quietly spoken. And I brought him in, and the room fell truly silent. They just didn't quite know what to do or what to say. (laughs) It was quite extraordinary. And um, he actually started the conversation. He said, so you want to know for real how it would go down? And I think it was the director who's a fabulous guy called Ian Toynton. And he said, oh, yes. And he put his hand into the left side of his coat. They all thought he was going to pull out a gun. You've never heard a kind of uniform. "Ah!" And he brought out five Dinky toys. Okay (laughs) Put them on the desk and showed how a robbery happened. Then he put them back in his pocket.
1: Uh, Until next time he needed them.
3: Yeah, he left. Yeah. It was an extraordinary moment.
0: You're listening to Scratch and Sniff with Nick Randall.
1: What a blame dump. I was going to ask you about the casting of Anne as well because um, Anne's obviously been on the show she told us uh, that her spotlight photo didn't really sort of scream out Dolly Rawlings as, uh, you know, and she literally looked quite different uh, I think um, she, she described herself uh, looking like an ageing hippie and a bit, a bit heavier than she usually would be um, and I think you were pointed to um, the theatre director Max Stafford-Clark to get a recommendation because it was only when you saw her I think in the rushes that you were so impressed that you sent her a huge bouquet of flowers which was very yeah. great
3: <laughs> we knew we had her the moment she came in. Okay. She didn't look right. She was overweight. She had terrible frizzy hair. But she had a deep anger. Because at her age, as being a very accomplished actress, um, when you're offered five lines and they say, Would you read? There comes a point when you want to say, Oh, shove it up your bum.
1: Which is she did for the Chinese detective. She, she And that was for Ian Toynton. She said, no, I, I, I'm, I'm worth more than this. And he yeah. remembered that, yeah. that anger when, when it came to with yeah.
3: And he tapped me on the arm and he said, I know this girl. And she just said at one point, this is my part. And one I've waited for all my life. When she read, she blew the roof off. Um, but she didn't look right. Um, and she just said, give me time. And bingo, look what she did. Her accomplishment, I don't think, has ever been truthfully, fully acknowledged. Is
0: Harry still alive? Yes, yes, yes. What else do you want to know, eh? What else do you want to know? What it feels like? What he's done to me? Inside me, it's like this. Over and over in my mind, why, why, why? You're all so bleeding clever. You tell me why. He's alive. Living with Jimmy Nunn's bitch. You've seen him then? No. I'll go on. Tell me how he could do that to me. Because all I ever did was love him. And when I, when I knew, I couldn't even cry. That girl, that young, stupid girl, looking at me like I was dirt. I gave her money felt such a fool betrayed humiliated because i felt so ashamed because i still wanted him i still loved him and even worse i still do
3: not only from widows but you know widows revenge and she's out is the most stunning performance when she's released from prison they turned me down.
0: Time we all face facts, Dolly, you especially. I mean, who's going to let a woman who shot her husband have access to little kids? You've been fooling yourself. They'd never have given it to you anyway. Not if they paid an on-site visit and found a bunch of tarts, stock, bollocked naked in the sauna. We weren't all naked. <laughs> not one of you. Not a single one of you even told me they'd been here. You all smiled and waited with your hands out for a cut. I'm sorry, Dolly, but I mean if they warned us. Mrs Tilly was doing me a favour. A favour. She signed the letter as well. You didn't stand a chance. <sighs> didn't I? Well, you're wrong. Because they said they were impressed. Impressed with me.
3: And I just don't think she's ever been given the accolade that she deserves. I think she's a superlative actress.
1: I'd like to see her in so much more. I mean, I know she's she's sort of flying high in EastEnders now and yeah. you know, stuff like that. But I, I, it's it's the usual thing. And I have this conversation with so many actresses and other people involved in in casting that there there, there should be so much more richer roles for for older women. Mm. Um, and it, it's getting a little bit better. But the fact yeah. that there are people like you who you know, you were an actor, yeah. so, so, so you're coming from that perspective and that, I would, I would assume, also helps you, you write better, would you say?
3: I think so, because if I can't talk it through, well, how do I expect an actor to? But at the same time, um, you know, uh, we expected maybe Fiona Henley creating as the beauty queen or even the young um, Maureen O'Farrell. But the kudos came from Anne Mitchell, the fan mail, and young men. They absolutely swarmed around her. She could not go out. She was that popular. And that bigger star for male audiences, they absolutely adored her. And so, to me, it is very sad that um, it has taken the business so long to realise that, you know, middle-aged actresses are not you know, constantly cast as these doormats. You know, all these, hey, do you want to talk to my husband, all that crap. And instead, give them a role that they can play. And then Anne's performance in She's Out covers a multitude of emotions. It's so powerful. Um, I just really acknowledge her as one of our finest actresses. SNS
0: Online presents the soundtrack of your life.
3: There's one piece of music that moves me to tears, whether that is something that anybody would want their foot tapping to. But when I play it, after playing it, I want to write. And it's um, Leonard Cohen's If It Be Your Will. But the recording people should listen to is it's sung by Anthony. And it is the most wonderfully powerful piece of music, if it be your will. And that to me is um, very, very special.
2: If it be your will That I speak no more And my voice be still As it was before I will speak no more I shall abide and tell spoken for if it be your will if it be your will that there is a voice from the broken hill and I will sing to you from this broken hill Know your praises They shall re-
1: Anthony Hegarty and If It Be Your Will. You're listening to the frankly wonderful Linda LaPlante on SNS Online. And if you'd like to comment on this or any other show, then please like our Facebook and Twitter pages, whilst all past shows are available on SoundCloud, all under the banner SNS Online. And finally, our email address is snsonlineshow at gmail.com. Do you think one of the reasons you left acting was because of this issue that you weren't getting the parts that not only you felt you deserved, but other people as well, and you thought, well, right, it's time to turn the tide, as it were? Or what was it a multitude of reasons?
3: Well, the reality was, you know, I came from Liverpool, I was short, with red hair, I was a prostitute. I played more prostitutes in every single cop show you can ever name.
1: But you weren't a prostitute in Rent-A-Ghost.
3: No, I was the one that disappeared when she sneezed. <laughs> It was the most farcical thing that when the Melvin Bragg show did um, an hour on me, they they glued them all together. And there I was, hello darling, coming my way, oh hello. I mean, so many. And in reality, you know, you could go in for a job and you've just done unrepertory, repertory, Ibsen. I've just played Head of Garbler. Oh, we didn't see that. Um, you know, it was just a, a farce, no matter what I did on the stage... Um, you go up for TV and it would always be the same part. So I really knew but at the time that I wrote Widows that I was getting very bored. Um, and I actually, truthfully, did think I'd be playing one of the characters.
1: Well, that was something else I was going to ask, was one of the reasons you got into writing was you could write stuff for yourself. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I'm <laughs> going to write myself a
3: blisterer. Yeah. And, and then... When Verity Lambert looked at me, it was all finished, all done, and she said, so what part do you want to play? And I was sort of taken aback, and I said, oh, my goodness, I've written myself out of it. I'm not right for any of them. And, I mean, it was quite a loud sigh of relief on her part, because I think to have a new writer already in it... And I also remembered as an actress what it was like on the set when we used to call them the suits, when there was a suit in and when there was a writer in. And it always t- tilted the energy on set. And I said to Verity, I don't want to go on set unless I'm absolutely needed. I want to now go to the next process, which is editing and looking at the at script coming in. And she said, it's up to you, you know, whatever you want. And I did only go to the set when there was a problem, you know, very rarely, very rarely.
1: And just to talk about She's Out, um, I I read this wonderful story, and Anne has confirmed it, that you had a fan letter written to you saying that, um, oh, isn't Dolly up for parole now, and this, we'd love to find out what happens to her next. And yeah. that was the springboard.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> it's the springboard for nearly everything I do. Upstairs right now, in one of the offices upstairs, there will be maybe 10, 15, 20 emails that have come in. Like one this morning said, why aren't we seeing more of an, Anna Travis? Please, I need Anna Travis. Another said, you have to do further trial and retributions Because I've come to the end of the box set, and I'm now bereft. So every day is somebody asking me, please go on, please go on. I never intended ever to do, she's out. And it was one letter. What's she going to do when she comes out of jail?
1: Well, I have a friend called Mez, and I'm sure he's listening now, who... Was insistent, but I, I make sure that you write more for Dolly. And I saying "Well, she's dead."
3: Yeah. When when they saw the viewing figures after she's out, the head of ITV was seen running through desks, screaming the, the high viewing figures and saying, "Could she come out of the grave?
1: Yeah. You know, she never died." Perhaps she fell off the horse and all the bullets missed her. Yeah. Or was she was behind the horse.
3: Yes. But um, no, I think. I think she died so shockingly, mm. and it's so fast you can't believe it happened. You cannot it's believe. it's like it.
1: Bonnie and Clyde, and the, and the, the cast of Blake's. Well. <laughs> yeah, Bl- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's getting rid of the entire cast. Yeah.
3: So no, it was um, a choice, mm. and I mean I can remember Verity's face when she said a train robbery. Yes. on a bridge yes they blow up the bridge and she said we'll never be able to do that no way no way but then she was such a born fighter I mean a really she said oh yes we can we're going to do it
2: Mm
3: -hmm. and again her fearlessness and confidence she was a really great mentor for me uh, her fearlessness in everything that she did. And again, she is a woman that was never given the kudos that she deserved. I mean, she alone did... You know, they would never have had the music for Doctor Who.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, absolutely. She she, she was very much the f- um, fighting through in a man's world, making Doctor Who on, on such a, um, yeah. a tight budget. And, yeah. and, I mean, I'm a massive Doctor Who fan, so I know Verity... Work from
3: Nobody wanted that music. Oh. It was very Gil Lambert and insisted upon it. And they were kind of laughing at her, but she insisted, bingo. Look at that.
1: Now, the interesting thing after Widows and Widows 2, you didn't go straight to more TV writing, but you chose to tackle quite a different discipline when writing your first novel, The Legacy. Why did everything change then?
3: It's the the old thing that I always say about everything. i got a commission. Mm. Truthfully, if somebody said to me, would you write, uh, you know, a book on ice skating and make it into a mystery? All right, yeah, okay. And they just said to me, "Um, would you write a novel, Pan Macmillan? And I said, yeah, okay. (laughs) And... It still remains my favourite novel of all the others I've written because it's pure Linda, um, the freedom to write a very over-length book. Um, They nearly died when they saw the length of it. I didn't know how to stop it. I didn't know how to end it. I loved writing it so much. And there's so much of my soul in the legacy. It remains my favourite book of all time because the characters. And uh, I had a, an amazing editor called Sonny Mehta, who's now head of Random House in New York. And he asked for a meeting with me. And he said, uh, don't quite know what to say, really. <laughs> he was knee deep in manuscript. And he said, you know, most writers control perhaps 30 characters. He said, I'm only halfway through and you've got 350. He said, anybody looks out of a door, in comes somebody else. And uh, I loved it. Loved it.
1: You're listening to Linda LaPlante on SNS Online. Now, we could not ignore the fact that our special guest today is also highly decorated. As well as Linda's extremely well-deserved CBE, which she received in 2008 for services to literature, drama and charity, she scooped no less than two Emmy Awards for Prime Suspect, also an Edgar Allan Poe Award and the Dennis Potter Award for Television Writing that BAFTA bestowed on her in 2001. She's also a member of the Crime Thriller Hall of Fame and is the only lay person to be made a fellow of the Forensic Science Society. How's that?
3: I went to Wales on a totally different thing and found a book. And it was, an old, it was a, a manuscript. Um, and how my mind jumped... Into wanting to research more and more was because I knew that the Cray's father was a Roman Gypsy. Now, not a lot of people knew that, but he was, and he was always known as a Caringo, which is a man, a Gypsy who lives in a house. And um, I was in Colwyn Bay, and an old second-hand shop. There was a tray outside. And in the tray was this manuscript tied with string. And I felt very sad that it was somebody's typed manuscript tied with string for 10p. And I went in and I bought it. I didn't even read the first page. Took it home, opened the page, and it said, this is my life's work into the Romany gypsy world. Dialect, language... Everything, I can't tell you. It was like opening an Aladdin's cave. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly I'm off shoot, I'm off now, Colin Bay, I'm doing the gypsy. (laughs) And I just everything happened Mm. that way.
1: Brilliant. Does each book come with its own unique challenges when you want to portray things accurately?
3: Yes, every book is a challenge. First off, to get it right, I mean, you know. Every novel you write, you hope somebody's going to be interested and caught into wanting to know the outcome. And uh, hopefully that is what you learn to do, is you can actually say to yourself, whoa, whoa, I'm off kilter, I'm off kilter. I mean, in The Legacy, I was not just off kilter, I was down the M1, you know, I was miles off. But it was a learning curve. And every book I write is another learning curve. Another, um, can I do it? Can I get more research on this? So, you know, the joy of going back into Jane Tennyson's life for the um, Tennyson book was, you know, finding officers that had been at work um, at some of the toughest prisons and some of the toughest police stations was... I didn't have to do research. They came out with the stories. They told me everything I wanted to know. And that's, you know, it was a joy. Um, They just wanted me to get it right.
1: So let's move on to uh, Prime Suspect, Jane Tennyson. I mean, just a phenomenally fantastic series. Again, uh, is there a fine line between constructing a fictional crime drama that has a beginning, middle and end to reflect the real life work of the police, which often presents, you know, a much longer timeline, stumbling blocks, false leads, which might take years to unravel?
3: Yeah, I mean, the reality is, truth is better than fiction over and over again. And when I get, you know, you think I've written widows, all these, you know, people saying how clever she is, and then rejection, rejection, rejection. I used to have a sign that rejection does not mean no, because they sometimes can rear their head 20 years later. But with Prime Suspect, I'd reach a point where I was teaching myself how to handle interviews. Um, Because I used to get so excited, you know, and tell them everything that I was working on, looking at. And I thought, why don't you keep your mouth shut this time?
1: You turn up for duty, late, looking like you have just been wrestling a pig. You're supposed to be making up for last week's traffic screw-up, so I have something positive to write in your first probationary report.
0: But I was trying to help an old lady. I've written a few details. Um,
1: I've not Tennyson, re- get your backside into comms and help Morgan out. Now!
0: Do you see how Tennyson? I'm offering to take over the murder investigation.
2: This is not the right time.
0: Well, when is the right time?
2: This case is
1: being taken over by DCI Tennyson.
0: I'm now in charge of this investigation.
1: Do you know what this means? You are accusing an officer of doctoring evidence.
0: Yes, I do know what it means, sir.
1: First female DCI.
3: First Jane Tennyson, DCI.
1: (laughs) Sorry, ma'am.
3: Don't call me ma'am. I'm not the bloody
1: queen. Apparently, after the first prime suspect, there was an initial press screening at BAFTA a standing ovation by uh, 10 members of the police at the, yeah. at the back who uh, were just so impressed by how realistically the, the show was. And they were just so relieved that finally there was a show that, that showed police procedure accurately. That must, have been so, um, that must have been wonderful to know.
3: It was, but, you know, I had a guide throughout the writing of Pram mm-hmm. Sussford and that was DCI Jackie Moulton. And one time I remember her saying, where would you get all this from? She was unaware, it was her. And she was a great raconteur. And she was the one that said, you've got to go to an autopsy um, post-mortem. You've got to go and sit in an incident room. She led me by the hand. And she was also very strong-minded over the script, say, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't do that. No, 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 no. And for me, you know, it's very proud to say that it was used as a police... um, it used to recruit prime suspect, and it's still used, and I still get policewomen coming up to me. I had one recently in um, Edinburgh, and she came up to me and she said, "I just cannot thank you for Jane Tennyson because it made my life." She said, um, "I was so traumatized and had such discrimination. I used to be afraid to put my name Christine. I always put Chris." So they wouldn't automatically shove me aside because they found out I was a woman until crime suspect. Then I said, "My name is Christine, like it or not, yeah. I'm here." And she was wonderful. And I, the feedback I've had from police women um, has always been absolutely so positive. <laughs>
1: I just was going to briefly touch on, on some of the other dramas you've done, any particular sort of uh, special memories of, of so many different uh, programmes you've done, Trial and Retribution, which is highly acclaimed, which had the split-screen approach for uh, showing the victim from different aspects. That was very innovative at its time.
3: I know, and the head of IT at the time, Nick Elliott, uh, had called me in and he said, uh, you know something, I don't know about the split-screen, he said, what about the woman that's got a small TV set, and you're going to split it in half? And then quarter. And I said, the woman who has a small TV set can probably play nine hands of bingo at the same time. And he went, you're right. OK, let's go for it. And we were approached by somebody that was doing 24 to say, how are you doing it? Of
1: um, course, Spooks used it later. Yeah. It all came from you.
3: Yes, absolutely. Mm. And I also was very fortunate in the first trial retribution to have a genius director called Ashling Walsh. Mm. And I guided her through. You see, what fascinated me about, and the reason for the split screen, was sitting in a forensic uh, lab, watching one man spend nearly an entire day easing out one hair from around a button. Because he could see that it had a bulb at the end, he would be able to get DNA. And watching that, and I thought, you see, that is so fascinating. But do I want a viewer to spend, you know, nearly the entire episode, watching a hair come out absolutely, of a button. Absolutely. So the reality was I could put it on a split screen and that began it. Yeah. Uh, you had to shoot a lot of extra film footage um, and it paid off. I thought it was a fantastic, innovative thing to show forensic work.
2: Just let me get this straight, yeah? Our eyewitness, the old woman, we schlep all the way over to Brixton. We feed our toasty cheese butties all afternoon, and now she says she has what? What is it?
1: Tunnel what? Vision. Yeah, what does that mean exactly? Well, she sort of sees only uh, this much, no peripheral vision, kind of like she's looking down a narrow tunnel. Yeah,
3: how bloody narrow. Well, she's actually clinically diagnosed as, uh, as, as, as blind,
2: so we sent her home. Oh, great. Great.
3: Why wasn't this picked up? This now means that Wilding is in the
1: clear. For now, get out. You're listening to Linda LaPlante on SNS Online. So, just tell us very briefly about your work in America. And how does it compare to, to the UK, or does it at all?
3: Working for television networks in America is very different. You have about 82 people who chip in with their ideas. But I'm very fortunate because um, I work closely with a brilliant producer, writer, called Tom Fontana. And um, we are working together on a series for America. And uh, he is probably one of the most successful producers, writers in America. Um, Very clever. And he sort of sometimes holds me in the (laughs) grip. And he goes, no, Behave and when we have to go in and pitch our show. And uh, the last time I was there, we were pitching to... And it's very difficult when you're pitching to somebody that looks about 10 years old. And I was just getting very bored. And they go, so what do you think is going to happen in, like, uh, say, season five? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, this is season five, so you've got 13 episodes in each season. And they're asking me, I'm just pitching the show, which is Cold Shoulder, and they're asking me so I said she has a leg amputated Tom Fontana nearly had heart failure she said oh wow that is terrific I said yes she donates a lung (laughs) (laughs) and at that point he pushed his chair back and he said we have to go now (laughs) but that's what it's like in America I
1: love it I love
2: it you have no idea do you what did you choose not to know? Your husband stole $2 million from me. This is about my life. This is about my life. And because it's about my life, it never becomes about yours.
0: Our husbands aren't coming back. We're on our own. husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. I saw Widows on television in 1983, um, written by Linda Plant, and it just sort of uh, spoke to me, a 13-year-old black boy in London. Um, and on screen were these four women who were being sort of judged in a way that they couldn't achieve and judge by their appearance rather than their character and at that point i was too in a london school that tv show somehow it gave me sort of um A connection with these women that they can achieve. So it was really, it was, it was, it's it's a kind of been a personal journey.
3: The film is really very, very powerful. It's a very big movie. You know, there's no way a TV series here. This is a movie. I feel so proud that they're your characters. You wrote about those women. I mean, how does that feel when you watch this film? I was so proud. In fact, I had a little cry.
1: (laughs) We've had the widows movie. Directed by Steve McQueen and a cameo from Anne Mitchell herself, which I punched the air when I saw her. It was just yeah. so wonderful. Were you happy with the Widows movie? I mean, I know there were two versions in America.
3: Were there two versions? There was oh.
1: another version. Wasn't there a TV movie or something? But I'm, yeah, but no, Steve McQueen.
3: I think there was a TV, uh, Steve McQueen. You know, he took it by the scruff of the neck, and at the heart of it was the story of women mm. grieving for their loved ones and pulling an armed robbery. Mm but politically and racially, and the violence was, you know, Steve McQueen. And, you know, people will say insult to injury. Did anybody ever say, would you like to write it with Steve McQueen? No, they didn't. They chose Gillian Flynn of Gone Girl. And um, I just worked privately with Steve McQueen, and he was very receptive.
1: I feel it has the same heart of the original, but, um, you know, it's an update. And Viola Davis is, is, is wonderful.
3: Oh, she's extraordinary. Not as good as Anne Mitchell, though, of I course say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> we'll
1: keep that between ourselves. Yes. OK. Scratch and sniff. With Nick Randall. So we come to the present. You're just about to go to Australia to do a a, a lecture tour. Murder Mile, which I've got to say, I actually jumped out of my skin when I was reading it on the DLR during that scene that we (laughs) won't discuss. So thank you very much, (laughs) Lindelof.
3: Thank you, Nick.
1: So you're geared up for the lecture tour
3: then? Yeah, but it's a lecture tour and, and what I do is I do events. You see, it's very, very important for me to meet my readers. And in Australia, I'm very fortunate to have a big fan, a lot of fans there, and it's really my appreciation. So they get to ask me questions and they get to talk to me and I sign books for them, and it it becomes, you know, showbiz, really. But it's fun, and they're wonderful.
1: Excellent. So, little plant, thank you so much for joining us on SNS Online. It only remains for me to give you your celebrity goodie bag... We we have all the usual suspects in there, including some snouts, so you can um, barter um, in prisons and stuff like that. A bit of snouts. But also, we have Travel Cluedo for you. (laughs) Just in case, you know, you're trying to think of more plots for your stories, and you could translate instead of like the major in the library with uh, whatever, you could be the Betson. the Beckton bludgeoner with a tickling stick in, 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 a, in a warehouse or something. <laughs> tickling stick. So you could come up with all sorts of new ideas while you're on the Australian tour. And, and I got a bottle. You got a bottle of champagne, yes. Liv Plant. Thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time today.
3: Thank you, Nick. I've loved it. Someone,
2: somewhere. Nothing but a final demand No
0: one, nowhere Helps you make it in this no
2: man's man's land. land